I told you over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading a new book by a uh, very familiar author, Francis Chan, that's kind of got me on my head, and our elders are reading it as well. And uh, as I went to uh, begin this week's sermon, I had another thing in mind as an opening thought, and uh, God changed my mind as I recalled something that he wrote in his book, Letters to the Church. He begins with this question, and I want to pose it to you. Is there ever a point when a church is no longer a church? He says, is it only when the doctrinal statement no longer declares that Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, just because you walk into a building with the word church painted on the sign doesn't mean that God sees it as an actual church. And he poses this illustration. He says, suppose I was concerned about people's health, so I opened Chan's Healthy Juice Shop. And I rented a building and painted a cool sign with a bunch of happy vegetables on it. And I began making drinks by blending kale and carrots and beets and spinach. Doesn't sound great to me. My customers loved my drinks and came daily. There was just one problem. There aren't enough health fanatics to keep my business afloat. And so my solution was whipped cream. (laughs) Once I topped my drinks with it, more people started coming around. And soon after, I added chocolate syrup and sales grew even more. Once gummy bears and M&M's were introduced, well, I started making a fortune. I would still boast that my drinks contained some healthy ingredients, even though I knew my clients were getting fatter and more lethargic. But my desire to run a lucrative business at some point overpowered my original goal of health. At some point in the process, I should have taken down the sign. This is a common scenario in churches, he says. Prayer, communion, fellowship, and Bible reading don't attract large crowds. So we start adding elements that will attract people. We accomplish a goal, but it's the wrong goal, he says. There comes a point when so many additions are made that you can no longer call it a church. What do you think makes a church truly contagious in the community? That's a topic we began to explore a couple of weeks back in the first message of a two-part series I've called Identity in Crisis, What in the World is the Church to Be? I believe the foundational ingredients which cause it to spread and grow have not really changed since the day that the church was born. From the first century to the 21st century, there are some common threads which run through every church that has enjoyed the blessing and the anointing of God. And the question that I posed a few weeks back was, what are they? So I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're working our way through chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. We're using Paul's ministry to the Thessalonian church as a good model to begin with. And even though it wasn't a long ministry, let's say maybe two months at the outset, it was intense and it was fruitful. 
Now, I suggested to you last time that I saw six things in this text that Paul built into this church through his ministry approach that I believe gave it a contagious appeal. Six areas that I suggested our church would do well in to excel if we're going to be spiritually fruitful and successful in God's eyes. Last time, we went over just two of those areas. And the first one that I suggested to you that a spiritually contagious church must be was that it must be committed to biblical accuracy. If you took notes, that's what you probably have in your notes, right? But what you see on the screen is going to be something different. A biblical church is committed to gospel centrality. I changed the wording on this. And the reason was that uh, while I still hold that Paul's approach was with biblical accuracy and he was putting a focus on that, I believe a better choice in terms, one which is more easily seen in the first two verses here, would be that Paul laid the foundation for spiritual contagiousness by being committed to gospel centrality. Look at these two verses again. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. And last time I went through a number of verses in the book that really focused in on what Paul came with and he preached the gospel. That was his first approach. He came with biblical content and he preached the gospel of God. And that was characterized, I said, by three things. First of all, he came with a spiritual focus in verse 1. He says, you know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't in vain. It wasn't worthless. And what Paul is doing here in this verse is he's building upon what he had already said in chapter 1, verse 5. Back up to verse 5 and look at that. Paul says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He came with a spiritual focus. Secondly, he came with personal courage. That's in verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel again in much opposition. Paul's commitment to the gospel and his trust in God was stronger than his fear. Remember that? We talked about that. And that's what enabled him to speak with boldness in the face of extreme opposition. Thirdly, he came with a powerful conviction. In other words, he said, I came with boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amidst much opposition. He came with a powerful conviction. Paul was not afraid to preach the hard truth. He preached the gospel with gospel centrality and with biblical accuracy, and he didn't leave out the hard parts. He preached it all. Case in point, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me just read to you these first eight verses here, chapter 4. You tell me if these are the hard parts. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress his def or defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now tell me if that's not a hard message to preach. You want to avoid opposition? Stop preaching the hard truth of the gospel. Hedge on the truth. Preach only what people are comfortable with. Don't ever challenge them. Don't make them squirm. That may attract people to your church in the short run, but it will not keep them there if they're truly seeking God. Genuine seekers of truth, you know what they want? They want the truth. They're hungry for the truth. And when they get the truth, they'll keep coming back. I once heard the well-known and much-loved Christian speaker Ken Davis say this. He said, the flesh longs for sound bites, but the soul longs for a meal. I'm convinced that a church that is sold out to the gospel-centric, biblically accurate, relevant, and practical teaching of the truth will be a spiritually contagious and biblically growing church. All right, second point that we went over last time is a spiritually contagious church communicates through personal authenticity. Personal authenticity, I'd like you to look at verses 3 through 6 here in 1 Thessalonians 2. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. A biblical church with a contagious style communicates an authentic message through authentic messengers and with an authentic motivation. That's what Paul's saying here or showing us here in these verses. There's no self-delusion. There's nothing immoral, no deception, nor exploitation involved in a ministry marked by personal authenticity. It's an issue of character. So we talked about last time. And that kind of character, when seen in the life of a church and its people, is what makes the church not only credible to the watching world, but contagious as well. Because when churches teach biblical truth, admit their personal failures, remain spiritually focused and are upfront about their motives, when the people live with godly character from the pulpit to the pew, when its people become profane Christians, remember, that was the last thing I left you with, that Luther said that we need to have more profane Christians in the sense that he was using was that it means that we take the message of the gospel out of the church and into the world where it attracts people. It's also going to oppose people. But that kind of church is contagious because it's biblical. So a spiritually contagious church is committed to gospel centrality. It communicates with personal authenticity. But thirdly, it's characterized by gracious 
authority. Gracious authority. Before he became president, General Eisenhower would demonstrate the art of leadership with a simple piece of string. He'd put it on a table and he'd pull it and he'd say, pull this string and it will follow you wherever you wish it to go. Push it and it'll go nowhere. It's just that way, he said, when it comes to leading people. They need to follow a person who is leading by example, unquote. At another time, he said, you don't lead by hitting people over the head. That's assault, not leadership. I'd like you to carefully listen to these verses here as I read them and become absorbed in the climate of this text for a moment, okay? Let's look at verses 7 to 12. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children, her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working day and night so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do you feel a sense in that passage of calmness and warmth and gentleness, but leadership? There's one thing I want you to notice about Paul's heart toward the ministry at Thessalonica in these six verses. It's this, that the church is viewed here not as a business, but as a family. You see that in that text? I also want to say in all honesty that there is a healthy balance that we need to reach between the church as a living, breathing organism and as a complex, smoothly functioning organization. It's those two things And it's a hard balance to find, isn't it? Because the church involves relationships of a family and eternal nature, it cannot be solely run as a business, can it? And that's why I completely agree with one Christian leader who said that the church leadership, church leadership is profoundly more complex than leadership in any other organization in the world. I believe that. You believe that? But Henry believes it, and Chris. Far more complex than any other organization in the world, from corporations to the military, even as far as the government of nations. Look at the terms that Paul uses in verses 7 and 11 here. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Verse 11. We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. You see, businesses and governments and armies, they don't have mothers and fathers. They have bosses and workers and presidents and constituents and generals and soldiers. 
Successful businesses, political structures, and military operations are usually run according to very rigorous standards. You either follow them or you're fired or you're court-martialed. You either do as you're told or you're off the team. Conversely, the church was never designed to operate that way, was it? Families don't function that way, do they? Well, if they do, they're often tagged with the label of dysfunction, right? To be sure, there are standards that must be followed, but there's also a lot of grace that's required. And as you know, sometimes extra grace is required. Like a family, there are always internal conflicts that need to be worked out together. Within healthy churches, it's not a matter of I say it and you do it or else. It's a matter of growing together as a body, as a unity, as a, as a community. Each part fully functioning, inseparably bonded in an interdependent living and loving relationship that is empowered and energized and shaped by the God to whom we belong. Our Abba, our Father, even that designation is familial. Look at Paul's terminology here in these verses. There's gentleness involved, love and nurture, warmth. There's sacrifice involved in verse 8. We have so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart not the, just the gospel, but our own lives. There's sacrifice involved. There's hard work, around-the-clock diligence involved. For you recall, brethren, in verse 9, our labor and hardship, how working night and day. We weren't going to be a burden to you. There's mentoring. There's encouragement and an understanding involved in verses 10 and 11. You know what? That, that's gracious leadership. It's not wishy-washy and loose, but it has the gentle, caring, and nourishing and nurturing character of a mother's leadership, according to verse 7. It's not harsh or unconcerned, or exasperating, but it has the firm, diligent, and challenging nature of a father's headship in verse 11. And why? What's the result? What's the purpose of all of that? Well, look at it in verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the purpose. So that we can help people become committed followers of Christ, right? That's our mission, isn't it? The two halves of our mission statement. We exist to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them become his committed followers, right? That's why biblical church leadership must operate more like a family business whose primary interest is in people and not profit. Profit with the IT, not the PHET, right? That has always been the case. The most common metaphor used in the Bible of this gracious authority, by the way, was the way a shepherd cares for his sheep, right? Amen? It's all through the Bible. And when God's people were not led with that kind of gracious authority, you know what God did? He got a little fired up about it, didn't he? Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 
hold your finger in 1 Thessalonians, but look at Ezekiel 34 for a moment. Let me read you a few verses out of Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 7 to begin with. God's talking about to the shepherds of Israel. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, and the diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Verse 7 says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 15, I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Here is what gracious leadership in the church is supposed to look like according to the New Testament. And it has this same metaphor of the shepherd caring for the sheep. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we read these words beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may be put, not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Chapter 13, verse 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You see, this is what a gracious authority is supposed to look like in the church. And a contagious biblical church is one that is characterized by gracious authority, as Paul has outlined it here. In 1 Thessalonians. Fourthly, it's also one that is confirmed by transformational activity. 
transformational activity. Look at verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. There is transformation happening in a contagious biblical church. Amen? And what is it that causes that transformation to take place. What does Paul say it is in this verse, verse 13? It's okay, you can talk. What does it say? It's the word of God, isn't it? Because they received the word of God which they heard from them. And they accepted it as not the word of man, but the word of God for what it really is. And it's that that performs the work in people who believe it. That is what transforms people. That is an absolutely non-negotiable tenet of which we must never let go. We must never get so sidetracked by producing results that we forget the root of what actually produces results. And that goes back to the opening illustration that I... that. I read from Francis Chan's book. I want you to read that verse again. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Listen to it out of the living Bible. And we will never stop thanking God for this, that when we preached to you, you didn't think of the words we spoke as being just our own, but you accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it was, and it changed your lives when you believed it. And unfortunately for many churches today, an attempt to become culturally relevant has overtaken their resolve to stay biblically sound. It's true. All kinds of gimmicks, all kinds of things are used to get people in the door. I'm going to talk about that in a minute because it's not always bad, but it's always bad when it doesn't go any further than that. Again, Francis Chan really cuts it right to the heart in his book. He says, look, if Muslims were advertising free donuts and a, an opportunity for a free iPad as a means to get people to their events, I would find that ridiculous, wouldn't you? It would be proof to me that their God does not answer prayer. If they needed rock concerts and funny speakers to draw crowds, I would see them as desperate and their God is cheap and weak. Understand that I'm not judging any church that works hard at getting people through the doors with good motives. I spent years doing the same thing, and I believe my heart was sincere. I wanted people to hear the gospel by any means possible. Praise God for people who have a heart for the truth. I'm just asking you to consider how this looks to a watching world. He says, while our good intentions may have gotten some people in the door... They also may have caused a whole generation to have a lower view of our God. It is hard for the average person 
This is how he concludes this. He is, it is hard for the average person to reconcile why, why a group of people supposedly filled with God's spirit, able to speak with the creator of the universe, would need gimmicks. That cuts to the heart, doesn't it? I'm changing my thinking about this stuff now, 30 years later. Having said that, I also agree with the observation by another well-respected author and pastor of a spiritually contagious biblical church. He said this, he said, many churches provide good news for the first century man, yet what we need is good news for modern man. So he's right too. We need a message with today's issues in mind, an application that ties into today. Church people need the assurance that the Bible strikes at the heart of today's needs. Addressing the issue we live with now, the issues we live with now. We don't make the scriptures relevant, he says. They are relevant. Our job as Christians is to point out how relevant God's word really is. Amen? Now for me, that is the most important issue facing the church today. And it always has been, in my opinion. And we are always trying to address that issue. I am, anyway, by incorporating a host of creative means to get the relevant word of God out there in people's lives. But that means blending time-honored tradition with all kinds of created methods. But what it doesn't mean, and what I would never agree to, and I don't think any of our pastors would ever agree to this, is compromising scripture. No way. I am convinced that it is the word of God's message that both changes people and draws people. In his powerful book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning tells an arresting story that shows just how true that is. He said, a pastor I know recalls a Sunday morning Bible study at his church when the text under consideration was Genesis 22. God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him in sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And after the group read the passage, the pastor offered some historical background on this period in salvation history, including the prevalence of child sacrifice among the Canaanites. The group listened with awkward silence. And then the pastor said, but what does this story mean to us? And a middle-aged man spoke up. And he says, I'll tell you what this story has for me. I've decided that me and my family are going to look for another church. And the pastor was like astonished, taken back. And he said, what? Why? This is what the man said. He said, because when I look at that God, the God of Abraham, I feel I'm near the real God, not the sort of dignified business like Rotary Club God we chatter about here on Sunday mornings. Abraham's God could blow a man to bits, give and take a child, ask for everything from a person, and then want more. I want to know that God. You see, God's truth is timeless. God's methods are always changing. And say that again. God's truth is timeless. God's methods are always changing. People who believe that there are only a handful of acceptable ways to present the gospel or to do church have either never read through the Bible or they did it with their spiritual eyes closed. God is the most creative being in the entire universe. 
Who are we to limit his ways? So a contagious biblical church is one that is relevant in its approach, but recognizes that it is God's word that changes lives, not our fancy methods. Amen? Contemporary lives are still changed, my friends, by the timeless truth of the gospel. Still. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. God will use myriads of ways to get that word of, across. Some of you are wondering what all this stuff is. I'm just going to give it to you really quick right now. For instance, I was raised in a family who loves and appreciates music. I grew up on music. When my grandfather grew up, he listened to music on an Edison disc like this. Right? He did. And so when my mom grew up, she listened to 45s. When I grew up, hey, I was listening to music on vinyl. And that's coming back. Not only vinyl, but reel-to-reel tapes and cassette tapes. And then when my kids started growing up, they started listening to CDs. And uh, actually, I forgot one. When I was growing up, I also listened to it on eight-track tapes. And, you know, I put a Facebook post out there yesterday saying, does anybody have an eight-track tape that I could borrow for my sermon? Nobody could come up with an eight-track tape. Half the people said, what's an eight-track tape? You see them on the side of the road with all the tape pulled out of them, you know, back in the day. But this is a good point, you see, because eight-track tapes didn't last very long. The method was like out the window because it wasn't working, right? Now, every, uh, my kids used to have what they call, well, they had an iPod, right? MP3 player. Nobody needs that anymore because now you can have it on this. All the music's here. Bluetooth enabled in your car, whatever. Here's the point. Same content, different approach. The integrity of the music remains intact. The packaging changes. But it's still the music that soothes my soul. Right? It's not the method that it's delivered in. So, you get the point, right? So I ask the question, how relevant do you think that we should be as a church? Or any church should be in this day and age? Are we content to give eight-track presentations to an iPhone generation? The flip side is also critical to understand. You really need to understand this. We need to understand this. That we must strive to minister in relevant ways to every segment, every generation. Because you can't just do this to people who grew up with this. They don't get it sometimes, right? So you've got to be well-versed in a lot of different methods. And we need to not leave any generation out and just focus on the new one. Can't do that. Whether it involves me as a preacher individually or us as a church collectively, we must continually strive to communicate biblical truth in a relevant way in order to affect spiritual change. That's my mission Till I die. 
It's what drives first light. And we must always remember that transformational activity in people's souls is the work of God by the word of God and not by cultural gimmickry. When a church operates that way, it will be spiritually contagious, but as history proves, it will also be powerfully opposed. Yet if it is committed to gospel centrality, it communicates with personal authenticity, if it's led with a gracious authority, it will also continue in the face of suffering adversity. Look at verse 14 here. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now, I don't need to get into much detail here on this point. Suffice it to say that endurance or continuance is the operative word here. No matter what the church does, if it is changing people's lives and spreading like wildfire, it's going to be opposed. History has proven that out since Pentecost. And Vance Havner once said, and this is an old, old preacher, he said, if things are quiet and undisturbed in your church, that is not necessarily a good sign. Because things are usually pretty quiet around the sick and the dead, and especially in graveyards. If a church is following Jesus, its head, it will experience the same opposition from the same factions he did. People stuck in a form of religion rather than the real thing. But far too often, the church's greatest hindrances come from among its own people, doesn't it? Now, that shouldn't be surprising, however, because Christ was also opposed by his own countrymen. So it says in verse 14, right? You, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. But, let me say this, remember, a church that believes in Christ and is built by Christ will not be successfully derailed or withstood. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that I will build. A contagious biblical church then continues even in the face of adversity. And finally, as we get close to wrapping it up here, it's conditioned by an unbreakable loyalty. Unbreakable loyalty. I want to spend just a couple of minutes here. In verse 17, let's read it. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. I love those verses. Look at the emotion and the intensity of those words that Paul uses there. 
It's even more incredible when you remember that such a powerful bond took place between Paul and these Thessalonians in just a few weeks' time. He was only there for a few weeks. Now, it's no wonder that Satan tries to break up and cut in on such a powerful force. Because when a church is that unified, it's hard to stop. Nothing can stop it, actually. Being away from that assembly hurt Paul inside. He felt almost orphaned. That's the impression I get when I read these verses. Is that how you feel about this church when you're away? I do. In all honesty, my family and I love this church. Nothing compares to it. We're certainly not a perfect church, but there is an affection and love here that I haven't found anywhere else. Some churches are frozen together. I like to think that we're melted together. <laughs> hey? And that's contagious, you know. What I encounter when I read Paul's words here is, is what, what happens when people become more important than buildings and programs. There's a sense of love and loyalty that's unbreakable, irreplaceable, and incredibly irresistible. A contagious church embodies and exhibits love and loyalty. Love and loyalty, those are great words. You might want to mark them down. In fact, they are biblical teammates. When the Old Testament writers spoke of God's profound, deep, faithful, covenantal love, the word they used was the word, and you've heard me tell you this before, chesed, which is accurately translated as God's loyal, steadfast love. It's love and loyalty. English translations can only approximate the richness of the original word, which contains the idea of devotion, of loyalty, of covenant faithfulness. Mutual love and loyalty is what I sense Paul was trying to convey here in these verses. God is intensely concerned about love and loyalty in his church. Do you believe that? It's far more important to him than competence. Can I say that again? Love and loyalty is far more important to God than competence in this church. If you read the 50 plus one another's of the New Testament, you will get a picture of the tremendous importance that God places upon love and loyalty, the unbreakable affinity that we should have in our relationships, not only with God, but with each other. You see, the, word the world, they long for that kind of stuff so much People desire that so much that when they sense it, it draws them in. I'll give you a couple of illustrations on this. They're weird illustrations because they almost take a negative thing and turn it into a positive. But when Chuck Colson was first released from prison and he began the ministry of prison fellowship, he was running around the country speaking here and there. And in those early days of the ministry, he was very, very suspect, even among evangelicals. And the memories of Watergate were very, very vivid in the minds of people, particularly of college students. So Chuck was invited then to speak on the campus of an Eastern Ivy League school. And as he was addressing them there, there was a group of students who had been picketing outside the building. And now they came into the building and they began to heckle him during his speech. 
And the leader of them shouted at the top of his voice in, in the middle of Chuck's address. He said, hey, Colson, how could you have stood behind Richard Nixon? And Chuck stopped and he looked at the back of the room at the heckler. And this is what he said. Because he was my friend. And with that, the place erupted in spontaneous applause to a standing ovation that even the hecklers joined in because as much as they hated Nixon, as much as they hated Watergate, every one of those people out there would have given their right arm to find a friend who would have gone to prison for them. A friend who would be loyal. Do you have any friends like that? Do you have anybody in your life that you know that no matter what happens, they'll still be your friend. They'll be loyal. I'm not talking about loyalty, stupid loyalty. Loyalty that disregards things that are bad. I'm talking about loyalty, somebody that'll stick by you and hold you accountable. R.C. Sproul used to ask his students the question, who do you think was the most wicked man who ever lived? I'll ask you, who do you think was the most wicked man who ever lived? Hitler. He said whenever that question was asked, the predominant response was almost always that little barbarian corporal paper hanger that rose to power in Nazi Germany by the name of Adolf Hitler. He gets the number one vote almost often for the most wicked man who ever lived. One of the biographies written about him is entitled Hitler, the Scourge of Europe. How would you like to have that as your biography? Here's a quote. The most wicked man in the world, Adolf Hitler, died in a bunker and beside him was his mistress, Eva Braun, who committed suicide because she was loyal to Hitler. That has to be one of the most demented acts in human history for somebody to lay down their life for love of Adolf Hitler. But the point is this, even Adolf Hitler had somebody who loved him with loyalty. And it's a strong sense of affinity that I find in loyal commitment among various groups of people that we encounter, like firefighters, for example, right? You get that impression? Hey, movies depict it. The old movie Ladder 49 was a real good depiction of that loyalty. I've often heard others talk about the sense of loyalty among law enforcement community. They have this kind of solidarity that one southern family described as they stick with the stuck. <laughs> Ever hear that expression before? What does that mean? Like somebody said, Russell, you're a cottonware, and the cottonware stick with the stuck. Right. It means that in that family, there's loyalty, there's love, there's an unbreakable affinity. My friends, that is what every church needs to have. We ought to be able to say to each other and with each other, you put your name in the blank, you are a Christian, and Christians stick with the stuck. We may fight. 
we may argue, we may cry, but it stays here, and we stay here, and we stick it out, and we stick together because we're loyal in this household. Jesus' lowest hour, as he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, he looked up and found his closest friends sound asleep. Jesus was on his face, begging the Father to let that cup pass. And while he's doing that, his friends were asleep. And even Jesus groaned within himself and he said, could you not even watch with me for an hour? One hour. Couldn't I have one hour of loyalty from you? See, even the perfect man yearned for a loyal friend. Do you know how important it is for a human being to have a loyal, loving friend? If Jesus longed for it, how much more the rest of the world? I heard of one well-known Christian leader who after speaking at a conference and receiving handshakes and pats on the back and wonderful affirmation from the crowds after giving such a great talk in an unguarded moment in a conversation with somebody after the fact over dinner, he said to, this, uh, to a colleague, he said, you know what? He said, really, all I want is to know that when I die, there's going to be five people who will come to my funeral and not look at their watch. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. But you know, we have that kind of a friend. We have that kind of a brother. We have that caliber of loyalty in Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us even when we were sinners. We weren't his friends. In 1 John 3, verse 16, it says this. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But it didn't end there. The rest of the verse reads like this. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. Let me close with this. This man was walking down the street. He passed a used bookstore. In the window he saw a book bearing the title, How to Hug. How to Hug. And he was immediately taken in by the title and being somewhat of a romantic himself, he went in to buy the book, and to his chagrin, he discovered that it was the seventh volume of an encyclopedia that covered subject headings from how to hug. <laughs> what a disappointment. You know, most people know what a church is. They think that a church is a place where love ought to be manifested. And many have come to churches hoping to find a demonstration of love only to discover an encyclopedia on theology. How disappointing. A healthy church, however, will embody both things. Sound theology, steadfast love. It will be spiritually contagious because it is thoroughly biblical. And that's what we want to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.
for you. Thank you for your steadfast, loyal love. A friend who we can count on at all times, who shows us what in the world the church is to be. You've left it for us, Lord God, in the pages of your word in so many different places. Help us, Lord God, to really take these things to heart, apply them to our lives, and show the world what true love and loyalty really is. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, I pray it for his sake. Amen.